0: Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, your home for insight and in-depth analysis. Listen live right here or join us at BobSadek.com. That's Z-A-D-E-K, BobZadek.com. The Bob Zadek Show. Ideas, not attitude. Information, not talking points.
1: Hello, friends, and Bob Zadig, host of the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast, nationally streamed at 8 a.m. Pacific Time Sundays on the 860 AM app. The archives of my Bob Zadig Show podcast hold 15 years of major issue discussion and is the ideal resource to revisit our prior missteps, since so many seem to reappear. I promise you in depth content on social, political, and economic issues that really matter. Always with the ideal guest, accessible and entertaining. Our standard ideas, not attitude. Today's guest, Christian Britsche, exceeds those standards. Christian is an associate editor at Reason Magazine, covering property rights, housing policy, transportation policy. And regulation. Well, that's a lot to cover. He has written for the American Conservative, the New York Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And his work has been cited in the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Atlantic.
2: Christian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I have a big reputation to meet uh, now, given that introduction.
1: Well, my friends, it's accepted as gospel by, econo- by economists, by politicians on all ends of the political spectrum and by everyday people who want nothing more than to stay warm and dry, that California is the poster child for the breakdown in housing policy. It seems that when it comes to government and its worst, California is the canary in the proverbial mineshaft, and what happens here is soon to happen elsewhere. Since Christian has written extensively on housing policy, I have invited him to join us today to examine the root causes of the, I'll say alleged, but more about that later, of the alleged affordable housing shortage. And by the way, my selfish reason for teeing up this topic is my fear that I may have left the libertarian reservation, as it were, by my concluding that there is no housing shortage anywhere and Christian There never can be a housing shortage, but we will see if I'm right. So, Christian, welcome to the show. Now, let's set the stage. You have written about California's housing policy and, by implication, Mm -hmm. the alleged housing shortage. So, big picture, because we're going to drill down. So, let's just set the stage. What is there about California a big state, a lot of people, a lot of land, a lot of unused land. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean exactly by a breakdown in housing policy? And then we will drill down one at a time as to the causes of housing policy failure.
2: Sure. So, I mean, to to describe California's problems with uh, housing, I would, I would just first go by saying uh, looking at price. You know, California, if you look at average home prices is... I think the second most expensive state in the country followed by Hawaii um and it also has some of the most expensive you know if you look at the top 10 um cities for rent or home prices uh most of those are California as well obviously San Francisco and uh Los Angeles but then areas in the the bay area particularly too so i mean prices are incredibly high um You also have um, a high ratio of people to individual housing units. California after uh, Utah has the highest number of people per housing units, which suggests you have a lot of uh, housing overcrowding as well. Um, And then also the um, percentage of people's income that goes to housing is a lot higher in California than it is in a lot of the rest of the country, Um, and particularly in California's large cities. Um And then additionally, you know, if you look at other measurements of housing costs or housing affordability, you know, the price of a home in California, uh, there's a huge gap between the price and then the cost of construction. Um And normally what you'd expect in a healthy market is that uh, the cost of construction or the cost of the house would be a little bit more than the cost of construction. So the builder can make a profit. But in California, the cost of the house is a lot larger than the cost of construction. So there's something wrong going on here. Um, it's a reason that the state is bleeding a lot of people, while you see, you know, a lot of people moving to Texas and Florida, where housing is more abundant, more affordable. Um, so, something about this picture isn't right. Well, um, let me let me interrupt mm-hmm. uh, you.
1: Uh, I'll confess to have, have tricked you and manipulated you into saying yeah. what I hoped you would have said, so that I can pounce on it. So get right. ready, get ready, my friend. You mostly said housing is too expensive here. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that seems unrelated, but you will see it's not. Are Super Bowl tickets too expensive? Mm, now, right. are they too expensive? Well, they're expensive, I guess, but they're not too expensive because anybody who wants to go to the Super Bowl can go. They just have to pay what the ticket is worth. So I I will take issue. There's no way to start a new relationship, Christian, that you and I are developing. But I'm going to take issue for the minute only to have a conversation with you. I don't even know what you mean by saying housing is too expensive. Are diamonds too expensive? They are what they are. Why do they cost that? Because that's a relationship between the the amount of diamonds available and the number of people who want them. So diamonds are not too expensive. They are exactly the right price. Supply and demand teaches us. Isn't the price of a house in California or housing in general, I don't want to just say a house, isn't the price of housing in California Exactly right, and isn't it always exactly right? Because that's what people are willing to pay. So I'll ask you to drill down a notch and just to explain what you mean, because I'm not yet persuaded what you mean by housing is too expensive.
2: Yeah, that's that's a fair point. So, like, you know, California, um, so. Um, the traditional, like, econ 101, uh, definition of a shortage is that there's a, um, there's some sort of price cap that sets the cap below market prices and therefore the market provides less than what people are actually demanding or or would buy in equilibrium. Um, and California actually does have this problem because a lot of cities have rent control, right? So the market rates, uh, market rate rents for units in California is, is probably lower than what they would be. But, um, a lot of housing stock in California um, isn't rent controlled? And you're right, the price rises to whatever the market level is. Um, I would say it's too expensive because a large portion of that price is the product of government policy, right? If it were, you know, diamonds or Super Bowl tickets are very expensive, but because the market has produced so much and demand is very high. And it's hit a particular equilibrium, right? The prices of oranges are very low because there's a lot of supply, and you know even though there's a lot of demand, the per unit costs or cost production versus demand leads that to be the per unit price for oranges. It's a relatively free market. The problem with California is that the you know while the market is setting the price for the homes generally, not including rent controlled housing stock, uh, the market is not allowed to add supply to meet demand, and so the market price ends up being. Uh, ends up reflecting a the huge tax that regulation and just also you know taxes uh puts on housing there and so like you know some of the statistics i mentioned at the beginning of this uh conversation point to the fact that regulation is driving up the cost of housing higher than where it would be in a free market again the difference between the cost of uh the home and the cost of construction is the, that gap is much larger in california um and that's a product you know than you see in other states and that's a product of you know restricting supply um again the number of people you know the number of uh, people per capita in a housing unit um is much higher in california than almost anywhere else in the country and again that's because people can't necessarily afford a home of their own and so they end up living with roommates you have multiple families living in the same unit so on and so forth um i think all of that and also the fact that um you know you have people again leaving the state because they can't necessarily afford housing there. Um, You know, again, if the, if the, there were no restrictions on supply and these were the price of homes, I would say, yeah, the housing isn't too expensive in California. It's just the market has produced a very expensive place to live for whatever reason, but there's so many restrictions on supply that I don't think you're getting a, you know, the market is setting the price, but you're not getting a true free market price.
1: So, so I would say you have just found the common ground between us. And okay, I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to refine with your permission and with Please. an invitation to respond. Really, the problem is not that housing is too expensive. The problem is that housing is more expensive than it would otherwise be because of government intervention. So it's not the absolute price of housing. If California had none of the problems we're about to discuss, but it was just the climate is to die for, it's a very nice place to live, near an ocean, there's a lot to be said for living here. It's a Mm -hmm. good place to live. Therefore, a lot of people would want to live here. If I stopped there, California would still have very expensive housing because it's desirable. And it would have a more expensive housing stock because it has weather and proximity to oceans, proximity to all the things that make it desirable. But I think your, your problem is, which is exactly the right problem is not the cost of housing, but it's how it got to be expensive. And therefore that may be the perfect segue into the rest of our show. So the qualification I would make is not the cost of housing, but why it is that expensive. And if it was just market acting accordingly, we wouldn't be talking
2: about this today. Is that a, a fair summary? Yeah, largely, I think that's fair. Um, I think one thing I would say is that obviously you mentioned a lot of very fine features about California that drive up demand for living there. I would say that, you know again, in a free market, that wouldn't necessarily drive up the cost of housing per se as much as it would drive up the cost of land but then markets would respond to that right so for instance it's very desirable to live on the beach in california um but you would imagine and so land prices go through the roof um and so you can imagine one way of responding to that would be developers would look at these high land costs and say hey there's a lot of demand for living here i'm going to build a big apartment building right on the beach uh, you look at a place like miami you know there's condos right on the beach and that lowers the price of housing um, because uh, the market is responding to those high land prices that you can't really do anything about. But again, in California, because there's so many restrictions on the supply, you don't have markets responding as they naturally would to high land prices, and therefore the cost of housing goes up. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I would I would add that little bit of proviso. But generally, yeah, I agree with the, what you described there. See,
1: that we're friends again. Okay, so now, <laughs> so now we are spending our time understanding how government by their ignorance, not only government, we're going to cover unions, we're going to cover uh, the political system and things of that nature. And we may even touch upon rent control a bit, but that's often a whole show by itself, but we may touch upon it. So we're going to discover if government wasn't acting with such stupidity, housing prices by that adjustment alone would be lower. So now Mm -hmm. we are Seeing government indirectly manipulate, it's almost as if there is reverse rent control where government's mm-hmm. action is causing prices to be too high as opposed <laughs> to too low.
2: So, yeah, I really like that phrase, reverse rent control. I'm going to have to remember that. So, thank you.
1: Uh, you can use it uh, as long as it's <laughs> just remember, Christian, attribution. You can use it, right. but attribution. Okay. All so, right. so Christian, in any order you want, but if you can do the ones that are the most attention getting because how pervasive they are, help us understand one at a time. So our audience can recognize it when they see it in their own community. Give us an idea. Show us how some of these policies, what they are and how they operate. To artificially inflate the cost of the commodity called housing.
2: Yeah. So um, I think I would describe the problem, uh, the way government drives up the cost of housing, in two basic ways in California. One is restrictions on where housing can actually be built and how much of it can be built there. Um, That's problem number one. And then problem number two is a very convoluted and lengthy process for approving housing that you are allowed to build. So to the first point, um there's all sorts of rules saying that, you know, on this this plot of land is zoned for I mean California has get like, recently changed uh, these rules somewhat, but this plot of land is zoned so that you're only allowed to build uh a single house on it. Um when maybe the market demand would be that there would be a small apartment building here instead. So that restricts supply and if supply is lower, you imagine the price goes up. Um another uh, restriction that California has is uh you know, it has um limits on how much uh new suburban subdivisions you can build um and so you know there's urban growth boundaries and uh you know preservation of open space and so you know if i don't maybe i don't want to there's not demand for an apartment building in this neighborhood but there would be demand for a bunch of new single-family homes uh outside the existing city there's restrictions on building that kind of housing too um and so you know that those are the two basic ways in which government restricts um uh you know, where housing can be built. And then additionally, um, you know, if you, it, it is legal for you to build housing here, uh, you know, on a, on a piece of land, you might have to go through uh, environmental review uh, where basically the city requires you as a condition of building, just an apartment building in a city. Um, you have to study all the environmental impacts that this uh, building might have um, and then propose ways of mitigating that. And then on top of that, we're gonna let third parties Say that you haven't studied X, Y, or Z impact enough, and therefore, and if the city approves your building without you going back and doing more study, we're going to come in and sue you and hold up your project for years. Um, and so you can you can see the combination of those two things. Um, now let's unpack. Land-
1: Let me unpack it first of all. Yeah, sure. Because mm-hmm. you said a, you said a ton of important information. First, as to restrictive, usually zoning has, is preceded by the word restrictive. Although zoning Mm -hmm. per se is restrictive or else they wouldn't call it zoning. So you don't need, (laughs) you don't need the restrictive part of it. Um, But okay, but let's use the phrase as it is commonly used, restrictive zoning. Now, and in, and you made reference, you didn't drill down. Of course not. You were giving us the topic, but an incident of zoning that you mentioned in passing is, for example, California loves its green space. And mm-hmm. therefore California restricts destroying their words, open space, which is kind of nice to see green and a cow and an elm tree and stuff like that. So they say, no, we'd rather see that than an apartment building or, or a fourplex. Now residents in California, many people, or probably everybody enjoys having green space. It's mm-hmm. nice. It's a quality of life issue. And I'm teeing up this topic because I am conflicted. I'm conflicted about how I feel about zoning. On the one mm-hmm. hand, the pure classical liberal in me says, no, people can do with their property as they wish. On the other hand, the illogical extension of that is there's no green. No zoning, therefore, you gotta. if you want to see grass, you got to see it on television because you're not going to see mm-hmm. it outside your window, and that's a quality of life issue. So I ask myself, and I'll ask you to comment, as to zoning, where you and I have the same instinctive, automatic, reflexive, negative feelings about zoning, zoning makes my life nicer. I get to see green where I wouldn't otherwise do so if market forces alone dictated land use. So mm-hmm. a case can't be made for zoning. So yes, the effect of zoning is a house isn't on that land or residence because the grass is there. But who says a house is a more important social good than the grass? And so your presentation would suggest that zoning is part of the problem. Can you modify or build on that concept? Or am I just um so far gone you don't even want to waste your time <laughs> getting me back in the program?
2: No, everyone can be saved in uh you too, Bob. Um so um, a couple of things I would say to that is, you know, it's, it's of course, totally, I, I'm this way too. I like open spaces. Um, I like, you know, being, ha- having access to nature. That's all well and good. Um, a couple of things I would say is that I think just, A, California has gone overboard in preserving open spaces and that you're protecting a lot of open space that isn't necessarily beautiful or used for recreation. It's just, it It's just people are restricting it because you know of the problems that might come from more people living next to them um or out of a misguided sense of environmental concern um so I, I think that there's a lot of marginal land that isn't op- open for development right now in California that could be without any real you know you don't have to chop down the redwoods to build housing on this this space um and the other thing I would add is that by restricting you know where you can build on some of this open space, you know it's not like the people who would have lived there don't exist anymore. It's just instead of them being able to, you know, live also in the, the Bay Area and then be able to enjoy the natural beauty that is still protected there, they move to the inland empire. They move to Nevada or Arizona where they are experiencing less green space as a result, but they still need cheap, you know, they're getting cheaper housing because that's the only place they can afford housing. So, you know, even if you're trying to just maximize the number of people who can appreciate nature, I don't know if urban growth boundaries or these kind of growth controls, uh, that form of zoning is necessarily what you want to do um i mean i would say it's not um and you mentioned yeah there's a balance between uh preserving open space um and then the provision of housing and the social good that comes from that who should make that decision i you know i would appeal to the libertarians in your audience that we should let markets kind of decide that you know private property owners they have all sorts of voluntary means of protecting truly beautiful open space or protecting productive agricultural land um you know either by just owning and operating the land agriculturally or turning it into some sort of conservation trust there's lots of private ways you can try to preserve beautiful uh, parts of the landscape without just like government drawing a line on a map and saying no housing here. Um, so that's a, th- 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 that would be my direct response to you. Uh, the other thing I would say. Let is, me just know, respond a people-
1: if I can, Christian. I, mm-hmm. yes. I I I sort of can't control myself, so the <laughs> this is like impulsive. Uh, but you said, I think I'm I'm, I'm being accurate that. Some green space is nice, but you say on the land isn't that pretty? So yeah, so, But that's Christian speaking. No one has ever mistaken you for Frederick Law Olmstead. Um, <laughs> so, so oh, you might not have built Central Park, uh, so or Prospect Park in Brooklyn or whatever. So, I say, is the conversation now not? Zoning per se, but in some people's opinion, the scale has been tipped too much. It's a question of degree, towards open space, and not enough towards paying attention to housing cost. And that's the first question. And the related mm-hmm. question question, and then I, I would love to hear your answer the related question is, you made reference to let market forces decide. And I would say in a kind of strange way, the zoning and let's say California's uh, overuse of zoning. Let's just give you the benefit of the doubt. Overuse of zoning. Uh, they went too far. That is market forces because of foot voting. So those who think California has created a situation where everything is too expensive here to the to preserve green space. They move. That is market forces. And people who are left are people who say, I pay a lot in taxes, but I get a benefit. So they say, isn't that actually market forces at work as one state with a different zoning policy gets people to move in and other states lose people? The people who were made are those people who like it.
2: Yeah. Okay. So to respond to your second point first, I would say that that's definitely, I I would not consider that market forces at all. In fact, I think you could justify almost any government restriction or regulation that way by saying like, Hey, if you don't like it, you can leave. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I don't think uh, we would say, I don't, I don't think that's, that's fair. I agree. I
1: was raised, I was just being devil's advocate, (laughs) but hedging my bets.
2: Yeah, sure. So no, I mean, people's ability to, leave california um if they don't like the policies or the zoning for you know means it's too expensive for them to stay there that's a that's a safety valve certainly it means california has not slid all the way into dictatorship that there's restrictions on them leaving but it's still them doing something that they wouldn't otherwise do but for government regulation Um, and so no i would not describe that as a market force and it's also you have the problem of there's a lot of people who might like to you know who who is making these decisions right you know, if there ha- it's uh, a local government or, you know, even if it's the state government, it's decisions being made by people who are already here. Whereas you might have people who want to participate in the land market of California who would have a preference for less restrictive rules that would produce uh, less expensive housing, but, you know, they don't live there, they can't afford to, and so therefore they don't get a say. So it's it's not the same measurement of preferences. It's not the same kind of market forces um, as you would see with something else where there's less restrictions. So, that's generally what I would say. And then to your first point about, you know, who, who is it to decide how much open space that we have? Again, I, I, I ask no one to take my aesthetic judgments uh, at face value or to, you know, let me say how much open space should exist. Um, all I would say is, you know, the problem with urban growth boundaries, you know, agricultural zoning that prevents uh, new housing is that you're telling someone else that, hey, this property that you own, maybe you would like to build housing on it. You don't value the open space that you own but we've played you know we're putting rules on your property you're not allowed to decide for yourself anymore um and so you know it's i guess at the end of the day it's like who is going to de- who's going to what's going to be a more accurate representation of people's preferences is individual property owners deciding for themselves on the land that they own do i want to keep this as housing do i want to operate it as a farm do i want to turn it into a subdivision um or is it going to be you know a few environmentalists in Sacramento deciding that No, actually, we're gonna just like draw these lines on a map and say you're not allowed to build housing here. Um, So yeah, I guess that'll that'll be my response to those two. Now, now you raised a a new
1: issue, which is where we're in total agreement, and but I want to make it, I want to point out to our listeners this distinction. You said and you spoke correctly about the unfairness of buying your land and then discovering. You have to keep it as a farm and you can't make it into a subdivision. Mm-hmm. That would suggest, you didn't quite say so, but that would suggest that the zoning changed after you bought your house. Now, or bought your land. I agree. Mm. That's an obscenity. That's sort of, if you will, regulatory cat. That's, that's, um, eminent domain by regulation where they regulate mm-hmm. the value out of the property. But yeah, um... that's a different issue, an important issue and and of course it's hot it's it's wrong headed but when you buy some land zoned in a certain way that's the deal you know that, and probably the price you paid has been adjusted for that impairment on the use of the land so you buy the land knowing if your fantasy is to convert the farm into uh low-income housing, you're not going to make it because it's zoned against it. So you haven't been misled. And I just want the audience to appreciate the distinction between changing the ru- government, changing the rules on ownership after you buy in and therefore they suck away value versus you knowing the rules when you bought the land to begin with.
2: Yeah, I mean... I, there's, there's something to that distinction as far as like, you know, how, how much maybe someone is justified in complaining about uh, a restriction they have to deal with that they knew about when they bought the property. But, uh, you know, a couple of things I would say to that is firstly, like at one point, everyone did have zoning imposed on a property that they already own. We, you know, we used to not have zoning laws in this country. Um, and then uh, states and cities passed zoning laws and they got more restrictive over time. Except Houston, so,
1: except Houston.
2: Except for Houston. That's a very good point. Uh, so, Houston does not have proper zoning laws. A couple other cities around Houston don't have proper zoning laws. And then some very rural communities also don't have zoning laws. But by and large, every city, every suburb in the country um, has zoning. Every state allows localities to zone. Um, And then California has a whole ream of, you know, state restrictions on top of this. But um, yeah, so the first thing I would say is that at some point in history, someone has owned a piece of property and then a zoning rule has been enforced upon them that restricted what they're allowed to do with their property. Um, And so, you know, and I I think it's fair enough to say like, hey, you shouldn't be surprised you buy a piece of property and it's zoned on it uh, and it has zoning restrictions with it, but you're still being restricted. And so the question is whether that restriction is right or justified or produces good or bad outcomes. Um, and it's, again, it's a govern. it's not a force of nature. It's not a contract that, uh, uh, you necessarily agreed to. It's a government regulation, which can, you know, is subject to change. Um, you know, good, actually, um, I think a good example of this, um, is, you know, a lot of the complaints about, um, if you remember the early complaints about Uber, a lot of those were coming from taxi drivers who they, um, they purchased, you know, in like a place like New York, you have to buy uh, a taxi medallion to drive, um, a taxi. And there's only so many taxi medallions the government issues. And so the prices were astronomically high. You know, it's like half a million dollars for one of these medallions. And then Uber comes in, gets around the regulations, and drives down the prices of these medallions. You know, these guys reasonably complain that, hey, I bought into this system expecting it not to change. And then these guys undercut the price of this privilege I bought. Um, that's, that's I understand why they're upset, but at the same time that you know in order for the to maintain the price that high, you would just have to stick with the government enforced cartel of uh, taxi medallions and it's a similar case with zoning where um, in order to not ruffle the feathers of someone who you know bought a property that zoned one way, you have to enforce this government land cartel um, and so I think it's a similar issue well,
1: as an aside, totally aside because i I lived in New York and have been around for a long time. The number Mm -hmm. of taxi medallions was fixed in 1938 at 13,388 medallions. It didn't change since then. Needless to say, the need for taxi cams has grown since 1938. Right. And as a postscript, New York City went in and there was actually litigation during, uh, I think the 08, um, alleged financial uh, meltdown, the crisis, there was, when the word bailout was in the news every day, taxi medallion owners were requesting a bailout, uh, by the mm-hmm, city. Right. And there was litigation because they were victimized, uh, by governmental action, um, and by making these things so expensive. So I mentioned yeah. that as an
2: aside. It's a- well actually if I can if I can follow up on that real quick uh, I think that's actually a really good perspective because it's it's almost the exact same thing with housing production right you know in the uh, the 60s or 70s when most cities passed like uh, you know big down zonings they capped you know Here's how much housing we're going to allow to be built in Los Angeles or San Francisco or wherever. And then obviously the demand for housing has grown in these cities and they're bumping up against those caps more and more every day. And so the same thing happens. The price of the taxi ride goes up in New York. The cost of the house goes up in California. Very similar dynamic. But I'm sorry, I cut you off, Bob. No, don't gate. But you sucked me
1: in. You mentioned taxi <laughs> medallions and here's what you sucked me in. I have to share an anecdote having nothing you know? to do with housing. I can't control myself. I ask your forgiveness. <laughs> there was a one-term mayor in New York City in the fifties, Vincent Inpolitari. You have never heard of him. No okay. one's heard of him. One-term mayor. He had and he would people were complaining about the traffic problems in Midtown Manhattan. He had a cure. At that time, New York City had almost exclusively checker cams. Big, comfortable, fold-down seats fabulous you get in and out standing up they were the greatest thing in the world he concluded the reason there were traffic problems is the taxi cabs were too big and they were taking up too much space per taxi (laughs) so he forbid any new any new medallions to be attached to a checker checker went out of business it was their biggest customer and we ended up having pintos and all those stupid tiny cars as taxi cabs so each cab would take up less space and no traffic problem. <laughs> a little aside, having nothing to do with anything, I had to share the anecdote. Okay, back to California and back to the housing, the expensive government-created housing crisis. You wrote quite a bit about unions mm, and mm-hmm. um the... The contribution that unions have made through the clear regulatory capture of government by unions. Um, Mm -hmm. So tell us just some of the ways, some of the tools in the union toolbox that have the direct effect of increasing the cost of housing to the detriment of all those who simply want to buy a house or other kind of residence
2: okay yeah for sure so um the first way is that um a lot of different types of housing um you know if it's government funded or receives some sort of government benefit um will come with this requirement that uh the developer pay uh prevailing wages to uh the labor um and prevailing wages you know you can imagine it's just like so it's like whatever the uh carpenters in that area are getting but if all the carpenters in that area are unionized and the prevailing wage is the union wage right um or most of the carpenters are unionized and the prevailing wage is the union wage. Um so that's that's one and this these rules are done, you know, imposed at the insistence of unions. Um so you know that's one way that uh unions drive up the cost of housing production, which is then reflected in the final, you know, price of the unit or the rent, whatever. Um it prevailing wage. And there's there's been studies on this estimated that it drives up the cost of housing from you know ten percent to thirty percent, wide wide variety. Um, so that's that's a very straightforward way in which uh unions drive up the cost of housing. The other more really pernicious way is through this thing called uh it's a practice called green mailing uh, and so it's gonna require a little bit of explanation for how you get a, pro- uh, a project approved in california but so basically, if you're building a big apartment building that requires some sort of discretionary approval from uh the city government, you know maybe they, not uh, if you know.
1: you're not if every project does, but go ahead, yeah, okay,
2: sure. Um, so if you're building a big, you know, yeah, you're building a big apartment building, chances are you're going to have to go through, uh, this thing called, uh, CEQA review. That stands for the California Environmental Quality Act, uh, which basically requires you, the developer, to, uh, you know, produce a study showing the environmental effects of your, your development. And then the city government will, uh, you know, approve, have to approve it as part of, uh, approving your development. Um, but the CEQA process, it allows third parties, anyone to, uh, you know, while, the while your project is going, you know, before the planning board and going before city hall to come in and raise objections and say, Hey, you didn't study traffic enough, or you're, you didn't study the impact on, uh, you know, uh, birds enough. Uh, you know, the, lo- the wildlife is going to fly in your buildings. I, I, uh, one story I reported on, uh, the union came in and said, um, you know, the developer needs to study the impact of residents. Uh, they're trying to build an apartment building and the, the the union said, you need to study the impact of the residents owning cats on the local bird population. And you didn't do that here. And so this, you know, you failed the state inv- requirements to study the environmental impacts of this building. Um, And so, you know, sometimes cities will respond you, to- By these. the way, you
1: must also share with the audience the issue of a shadow.
2: Oh, right. Yeah, sure. This is the other very common one is that uh, you never have done enough shadow studies. Um, so I, I reported on um, a guy trying to turn a laundromat he owns in San Francisco um, into, a, uh, into an apartment building. Um, this wasn't necessarily the unions uh, giving him trouble for, in this particular issue, but um, he had to end up doing three shadow studies showing that uh, his, uh, his building would uh, slightly shade the adjacent school park Uh, for a few hours in the afternoon part of the year. Um, And this brought all all these complaints from activists saying, you know, the kids, they're gonna be malnourished because of the lack of sun, they're gonna get rickets. You need to look into the impact of this. Um, And so this delayed his project substantially. Um, So that kind of shows you how third parties are able to kind of hijack this process with what are often cynical demands. You know, in that case, the activists didn't actually think that, you know, the shade was going to actually impact the kids' development. They just didn't want the apartment building And so here's a way, you know, here's a cynical objection we can raise that will delay its approval. Similar thing with the case of the, you know, the union and the residents and their cats. I don't think the union really cared. What what unions do with this, though, is so they say, they say, hey, this, uh, you know, this building, you haven't studied environmental impacts. They say that to the city. You need to require the developer to go back and study this more. And then the union will go to the developer and say, You know, you said, you told us that hiring union labor on your project is going to be really expensive. Well, you know, it's going to be even more expensive, us filing lawsuits for the next 10 years, keeping your project in limbo. So why don't you just go ahead and agree to hire all union labor? And, you know, sometimes the agreements are more restrictive. You know, you have to hire our particular union. You have to pay into our union education fund. You have to pay our legal bills so we can go do this to other developers. Um, this is what the practice called green mailing. If it sounds like extortion, like I understand why you get that impression. Um It's something that um California's unions have used to great effect to get work on projects, but also as a result, drive up the cost of housing, as you can imagine, both through the cost of delays and then the cost of the more expensive labor the developer has to use.
1: So, and these are nothing other than wealth transfers. When the smoke yeah. clears, individuals who want nothing other than to live near where they work, they are, pointed, they are selected by random, of course, because they want to buy into the housing. They are making a direct wealth transfer to a carpenter they have never met, but the carpenter is in the union. And if the unions didn't have this power, both by imposing prevailing wages, which is nothing other than Minimum wage for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. It's like minimum yeah. wage on steroids. That's all it is. It means the build, the contractor, must overpay workers, but the contractor says, Oh well, I'm just a middleman. I'm not gonna really overpay. I'm gonna tentatively overpay until I get back my cost in the sale of the housing. So as a core principle of economics the consumer always pays, just like taxes. The consumer always pays. There may be middlemen, in this case contractors, who tentatively pay, but when the smoke clears, the consumer always pays. Christian, you, I think, going to say something.
2: Uh, yeah, so no, I, mean, I totally agree with that. So the consumer pays both in that. You know, sometimes the the price, you know, the price of housing of a is is um, is driven up by these prevailing wage requirements or, you know, the other uh, more pernicious effect is that sometimes this drives up the cost of production of housing to a point where it just doesn't get built. Right. Um, and so then the consumer pays that way, too, because you have, a, you know, you get back to this problem if you have fewer units than a free market would otherwise provide. And so the price goes up as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a real problem. And, you know, it's funny, like you'd think unions would be on the side of expanding housing production. because That means more work for their members. You know, you have this weird situation in California, you know, it's like, if you imagined, um, uh, you know, auto workers in Michigan were opposed to building more cars, right. Um, but California has set up this system where you have such a convoluted process that, it pays, the, you know, existing union members more to extort the little amount of, de- or, you know, to uh, enforce wage premiums on the existing amount of development that does happen than just let the market function and get a lot more work that way. So and I don't even think it's necessarily pro worker. It's just pro the developer, you know, it's pro the existing uh, union workers. So it's another protectionist scheme.
1: You have also written, Christian, about the issue of. Who controls zoning and related issues? And by who, I mean, is it the locality or oh. is it the state? And that issue itself has a profound effect upon housing. And we're going to use this issue, Christian, to move into our last subject. After we discuss local versus state control, we'll discuss what reforms look like and why even mm-hmm. the reforms, for the most part, fail. So the yeah. audience can recognize it when it happens in their community. But first, mm-hmm. discuss, if you will, this important issue of local versus state control. And the reason it's important to me is no surprise. Of course, I favor lo- local control versus state control. Uh, obviously, as a as a principle of federalism writ small, just like I favor states versus feds, I favor counties versus state because the closer it is my government is to me, the happier I am because I have more individual control. But I think you will find by thinking to my audience, I think the audience will find that my bias of of local control versus state control puts me on the wrong side of this issue because (laughs) state control seems to be more interested in more and lower cost housing. So uh, again, again, as a libertarian, I've conflicted. So discuss this issue if you would, Christian.
2: Sure. So, I mean, the, the basic way is you have to think about what are the interests of the state government versus the local government um you can imagine the local government is very sensitive to the concerns of people who already live in the community maybe about um you know the impact a new development might have on property values or traffic or shadows or you know bird deaths or something like that um but what um they're probably less sensitive to is the ability of people who don't live in the community to move into the community um and so as a result you know when you put those two things together the localities tend to have more restrictive rules um, than if you were setting those rules at the state, at the state government level where people are moving around more and has a more general interest in, uh, you know, economic growth or something like that. Um, and so the, the movement in zoning reform generally has been to sh- try to shift some decisions about how restrictive local governments can be, um, or, you know, what, ex- how restrictive your zoning can be from, the local government to the state government. And, you know, I would respond to, I would say, you know, I'm a federalist too. Um, but that's actually why I really am in favor of some states trying out shifting zoning decisions to the state level as opposed to having it at the local, govel, uh, local level. Because federalism to me is just the arrangement in the Constitution whereby states have wide control over their own policies, the federal government has very limited control, and then local governments are basically not mentioned at all. Um, and so for me, I think it's kind of silly that we have this system across the entire country where every state gives local governments the most control over land use, um, reserves a smaller and reserves a pretty small role for the state. I'd like to see some more state level experimentation, some more laboratories of democracy, if you will, trying out some uh, setting these making these policy decisions at the state level. And I think, you know, the states. Are generally going to have a greater interest in housing affordability and be less likely to be captured by some of these interests that are have really strong preferences for restricting housing production.
1: As a libertarian, um, I am so as you are. By the way, you're not a federalist. At least in 1787, you would be no, an anti-federalist. So not
2: a, not a Hamiltonian. Yeah. Okay, I just <laughs> wanted
1: to correct that. Let the audience touch their dial. Remember dials on radio? (laughs) Touch their dial because they didn't tune in to listen to a Federalist. But okay. But I had to clarify then, the audience continue their love for you. Now, as to the issue of state versus local, of course, your point has profound merit and great appeal from the standpoint we are talking about, which is housing. On the other hand, on the other hand. The danger is if those who would favor a, a stronger, as the, as the founder said, a stronger general government, the federal mm. government, your very words could be quoted in support of their position. So my problem is it, it seems I'm speaking only about myself, my internal conflict for me to favor state control makes me worry about maybe I really don't favor more control to the citizen because the difference is you're moving control away from the voter and that to me is pretty gosh darn important. Now I'm not doing it to contradict you because I'm conflicted myself. I mm-hmm. So in this program, I have found myself, I struggle with my position on zoning It. I've conflicted with my own libertarian views and my position on state versus county. I've conflicted Mm -hmm. in my own views. So I'm doing that because I'm begging for you to be my support group. Uh, Help me through this. I fear that I'm losing my creds. So (laughs) that's why I asked you to discuss the issue.
2: Yeah, sure. So you know, and it once I, I maybe misspoke, because I, I said um, you know if I said state control, you know that's certainly not my 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 versus local control. That's certainly not my aim uh, either for state control or local control. It would be for individual control, right? And so then you just have to ask. It's a question of judgment and prudence. Uh, which you know, if I move these decisions to one particular layer of government, uh, are, are they going to produce decisions that are give individuals more control or less control? um and to make that decision i think we just have to look at the evidence right um and the evidence is largely that local governments have been very restrictive states are a little less so um but there's still plenty there's still plenty of reason to worry about what states are going to do with their powers when it comes to land use you know all the environmental um review rules that i was talking about um those are all set at the state level so um you know there's still lots of problems um for, you know, put it, putting this at the state level. But I think when it just comes to the very issue of, like, are you allowed to build an apartment building on this piece of residentially zoned land, the state government is going to be a little bit better about letting you do that than your local government.
1: Now, we, uh, we're running out of time. I'll just mention, because I promised our listeners we would analyze the reforms. But mm. we kind of have... Because the reforms, at least in California, have not been at the local level. It's been at the state passing legislation that to some, as you have pointed out, limited degree removes what is traditional local control zoning and things of that nature. And the state both offers a carrot and a stick. And the states Mm -hmm. have been offering economic incentives and indeed, Biden in his obscene, obscene $1.7 trillion, whatever it was called, the Inflation Reduction Act, had a little bit of, of trans, of funds to localities, which, which induce legislation or create legislation to provide for more housing. So I, I think those are the reforms that are on the way. Of course, on the other side of the spectrum, the Wall Street Journal right. reported, I think just the other day about the early stages of a national rent control statute. Right. I wonder mm-hmm. if that caught your eye. So that's the scary other way to go. So Christian, how could, how can our friends follow the work of course of reason? And by the way, the reason magazine, which I've been reading for 25 years is a must read. I don't care where you are in the political spectrum the reason is just plain fun besides being chock full of thoughtful readable non-lecturing commentary <laughs> it's it's the way issues are supposed to be presented it is the gold standard for a uh, for print and digital media so question how can our friends follow reason and follow your work
2: yeah, um, so thank you for the kind words. Um, so I'd recommend anyone uh, check out Reason.com where you can find all our uh, articles, videos, um, all sorts of great content about, you know, that's where I write about these housing issues and I have colleagues writing about all sorts of other stuff too that you'll maybe find more interesting. Um, we have a print magazine too you can subscribe to. Um, if you want to uh, hear my own political, you know, see, find my work via Twitter. Um, I'm at uh, on Twitter at uh, Christian Brits. Um, so, yeah, that's where you can find my work. Um, and I just wrote about the federal rent control proposals today that you mentioned. So Oh, did you? Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> You're on top of your game, Christian. My compliments. So, fa- Christian, thank you so much. I know how valuable your time is, and I sure appreciate you giving myself and my audience an hour of it. That was quite generous of you. And thank you to my listeners out there and my friends for also giving me an hour of your equally valuable time. I hope you have found it to be worthwhile and hope you have found the content to be exactly at the level that you wish. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you so much to my friends. And sure as anything, I'll be back again next week for another hour of ideas, not attitude. Thank you so much.